presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening. Welcome to Spooky South Coast here on WBSM. Tim Weisberg here. Matt Costa behind the controls, science advisor Matt Moniz behind the madness, and uh, we just uh, we just stopped at the Ellis Bowl Cemetery yet again on our way here. Still in the process of reviewing the evidence, and we'll let you know if we found anything out. However, I was a little unnerved by one thing that happened while we were out there tonight. Uh, now, if those of you who listened to the show last week, we had some... Excellent EVP cleanup work from New England Paranormal Video Research Group. And if you'd like to check out the work they did on the original EVP we captured, www.nepvrg.com, you can hear it for yourself. But they thought that they found the word Mary in the female voice that had imprinted itself on our recording. So I was walking around in the same area where we got that EVP originally. I know it because there was a a uh, headstone there that when I took a picture created a weird light reflection that looked like a spider, and I thought it was cool. So I went back there to take another picture to see if I could duplicate that. And I said, this is kind of where we had that issue before. So I walked around, and I was you know, doing a little bit of provocation. And then I said, you know, Mary, we really should look around and, and see if there's Mary. So I start walking toward the right-hand side of the cemetery. And I said, you know what? Something's telling me to just go back to that s- stone where I was and to wait, and that if anything's going to happen, it'll happen there. And all of a sudden, Matt and Matt are standing in the road directly in front of that stone, and they're reading a headstone that says Marion. So maybe that means something. Maybe it doesn't. Uh, We'll let you know if we find out anything else. And, of course, we're starting to think that maybe our amateur hour investigation here isn't enough, so we're going to have to go in there with some better equipment. Uh, You know, Matt Moniz uh, brought a couple of digital recorders, and so he's going to have a little bit better... Uh, scientific analysis for us. But we'd like to hear about your ghost stories, too. 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500, and, of course, online through our message board at SpookySouthCoast.com. We haven't started a live thread for tonight's show, but I'm sure one of our loyal listeners can do that for us. And uh, we'll get your thoughts, because we're going to have some really good local haunting tales for you tonight, because we have, joining us tonight... Dan Gordon and Gary Joseph, they're the authors of Cape Encounters, Contemporary Cape Cod Ghost Stories, a book that came out a few years ago. You can check out their site, capecodghosts.com. They're going to join us in the first hour to talk about some Cape Cod legends and lore, some uh, more recent ghost stories, not the, you know, not the old Pilgrim stuff, not the old stuff that we've talked about in the past. This is some stuff that's really been happening in, you know, in the last 20 or so years. And then in the second hour, we're going to bring back in Dan Gordon and bring along with him his other co-author, Mickey Bradley. They're working on a new project called Haunted Baseball, some of the most intriguing ghost stories around America's pastime. And uh, because the book still isn't, you know, it's still in the early stages of being published, uh, there's not a whole lot of specifics they can get into. 
uh, in terms of some of these stories. But we're going to pick their brains as much as we can. And, of course, anybody that's heard any ghost stories surrounding baseball, we welcome you to call in because hopefully you know you can give them something they haven't heard for the book. And you know maybe you can mention one of those cases that they can't talk about. So, again, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. Online SpookySouthCoast.com. You know we welcome you to get in touch with us anyway because we're here to believe you. So what we'll do is we'll take a quick break right now, and on the other side we will have Dan Gordon, Gary Joseph, and we'll talk about some contemporary Cape Cod ghost stories. So stay tuned here on Spooky South Coast. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. Call us in with your Cape Cod ghost stories if you'd like. But we're also going to talk to you, Dan Gordon and Gary Joseph, the authors of Cape Encounters, Contemporary Cape Cod Ghost Stories. You can visit their website, capecodghosts.com, if you want to find out more about the book. Uh, well, Dan Gordon is a... He's been published uh, in the Providence Journal, the Fort Worth Star, the San Juan Star, nine Elysian Fields Quarterly, and Scribner's Encyclopedia of American Lives. Uh, he's written quite a bit about baseball, which we'll get into in the second hour. Gary Joseph is a lifelong Cape Codder who has been interested in local contemporary Cape Cod ghost stories ever since his own childhood encounters and his family's home in Hyannis. We'll have to ask him about that. He was born and raised a skeptic who summoned on the Cape as a child, fell in love with its graceful architecture and natural beauty, and falling for the charm of its ghost story. So, Dan and Gary, we welcome you into Spooky South Coast. How are you doing tonight? Good. Good to be How here. are you doing? All right. Now, uh, it always works out well when we have two guests on the phone at the same time because everybody talks at once. So. <laughs> but we'll bear with you. And we're, uh, we thank you for joining us on such short notice after our originally scheduled guest, Lauren Coleman, was going to join us to talk cryptozoology, but uh, he had something come up. So, you know, luckily... We got in touch with Dan, and, and he set everything all up for us, and now we have this action-packed two hours to talk about some of the most intriguing ghost stories you'll hear. Absolutely, yeah. I, it's, it's tough to fill Lauren's shoes. Uh, I mean, <laughs> impossible to fill his shoes, but, you know, <laughs> be happy to talk about our research. <laughs> well, I mean, I think he's trying to fill Bigfoot shoes, so that's going <laughs> to take right. a, a little bit more, too. Sure, yeah. Now, Size 37. <laughs> now, uh, when when you guys uh, when you first started putting together this book, uh, about how long ago was it that you said, you know, this this is some stories that need to be told? Um, it was about ten years ago that uh, we started to uh, that we first discussed the idea. And um, originally, I mean, I had lived down on the Cape, uh, spent a, um, a, a couple of winters out there, and um, I, I was interested in doing some writing on the Cape. And Gary started telling me some of the stories. Uh, um, and how common they are in Cape Cod, and you know some of his own personal stories, and I was hooked, and more hooked as we went along. Now, now, Gary, what was it that happened to you, if you don't mind sharing with us? When I was a kid and growing up in an old house, the upstairs rooms didn't have anybody living in them, and we would hear big, loud crashes, like furniture tipping over or bookcases tipping over, mm -hmm. but there was no furniture up there. So my dad would get tired of running upstairs and to look to see what caused the noise and finding out there was nothing up there. And as a kid, that fascinated me because I couldn't understand what 
could cause something like that. And every time I would hear ghost stories in my family, my ears would perk up, you know, wondering if they could be true. So it was something that was talked about in your family, something that was believed, uh, you know, not something they kept a secret? It wasn't really kept a secret. It was believed because, at least the noises, because it was something that happened, mm-hmm. and everybody knew they happened, and everybody heard them. But they attributed it to something paranormal? Only because there was no other explanation we could find for them. And, and most often when you've eliminated all the normal, all that's left is the paranormal. Yeah, we would also smell cigar smoke, and there would be some other things that went on, too, footsteps. So it definitely sounds like a, a great environment to grow up as a child. <laughs> yeah, it really was. It really was. And I kind of, my interest was always there over the years, and it was an idea that I had in the back of my mind to do, and I had met Dan, we were both working at a, a sports card store, and him being a writer, and he suggested the idea of collaborating on a, a writing project. You know, and what's strange is I thought I was probably the only sports writer, sports type involved in the, in the paranormal chase here, but to find uh, kind-hearted souls is, is a blessing here. So, <laughs> Now, when, when you uh, started kicking around the idea for the book, you must have acquired some other stories over the years, how did you go about finding this out? Through books or research, or, or did people actually start coming up to you and sharing stories with you? We had kind of a, a multi-pronged approach. I mean, we, you know, we, we uh, canvassed the Cape, um, you know, very unconventional, but uh, I mean, probably one of the best approaches. We just uh, went kind of door to door to like community centers, like police stations, fire stations, libraries, just places where uh, local people congregate, you know, and and kind of gather stories that way and um you know everybody you know everybody knows somebody who has a, a ghost story or you know especially in, in small close-knit communities and you know all these older houses and um we also um you know did a lot of archival research in, in the libraries and and um um that was another technique we used too and how exactly do you broach the subject when you walk into a community center and say, anybody seen a ghost lately? <laughs> well, there's no way of dancing around it. You, know, you just have to, <laughs> have to ask the question. I mean, um, you know, I mean, we explain what we're doing and that, you know, we were, you know, trying to, you know, treat this topic respectfully and not, you know, write a, a overly sensational book about ghosts, but try to treat as truthfully as possible. And I think that uh, tended to make people more comfortable about you know, talking about it or identifying somebody else they knew. And when did the book come out? It came out in 2004, in the summer of 2004. Because I know it's already become a huge seller around here. Yeah, yeah, it's been uh, been wonderful. I mean, it, it's, you know, it's really uh, delighted us. It was a great surprise. Because when, when we uh, found out that you guys were joining us tonight, I tried to find a copy of the book uh, as fast as I could, and I called a couple local bookstores, and they said, no, we can't keep that book on the shelf. <laughs> so I guess it, it is true. Everybody seems to know somebody that has a ghost story, and, and, and most of them probably made it into your book. A lot of them did, and we ended up with a lot of other material. That we're actually working on a second book right now. It's a little bit more story-oriented, whereas the first book was a little bit more people-oriented. Mm-hmm. But we really got a ton of stories, and it's signings and get-togethers. We've really heard hundreds and hundreds of stories and, you know, some really terrific stuff. I mean, even though I've heard a lot and Dan has heard a lot, you know, we never cease to be interested, you know, to get kind of the, the juices flowing when we hear a good story. And when you write about Cape Cod ghost stories, exactly what are you defining as the Cape area? Just everything over the bridge? Exactly, exactly. Um the islands aren't really something that was too familiar to us. So, me, being a native, I kind of wanted to stay within my backyard, you know, 
something that I knew and was familiar with and felt like home. And Dan had come to the Cape as a visitor, and he got attached to places like Chatham and Brewster and the north side of the Cape where he had spent time there. And so what are some of these, now we're going to get into the part people really want to hear about, what are some of these stories that you've acquired for this book? Uh, and there's a, all, all sorts. Um, you know, we get a lot of, you know, stories in people's, from people's homes, you know, like people feeling they have a resident ghost. Um, you know, some public buildings and, you know, of course, inns, some of the older inns, but, and, you know, restaurants. Um, one of the stories that, you know, well, our very first interview was with um, Bruce McKenzie, who's a, a former West Point professor and, you know, um, somebody, you know, very credible um, and um, interesting. And he, he, you know, he, he went on to tell us how he'd grown up in the house of, you know, he felt he'd grown up in, in this house and he was in his uh, late 70s when we spoke with him. So over a period of, you know, 60-plus years, um, shared his home with the spirit of a, a land pirate or moon cusser. Um, and, you know, they, when growing up, he would hear, like, groans and shrieks in the attic, and the whole family just accepted it as, as you know, this a land pirate a spirit. And, um, you know, gradually over the years, he said that, you know, became used to it and very comfortable with it and, you know, kind of almost thought of it as like an old friend. And, like, would he actually, after coming in from long trips, um, would even greet, greet the spirit, you know, as he came in the, through the door. Well, the, the interesting thing about the Cape Cod sailing history is there are a lot of those types that aren't really discussed in the, you know, the general publicized history of Cape Cod, but it was a very heavily, you know, populated area from pirates because it was a great place to land and to hide out. The Widow, to be precise, was uh, one of Blackbeard's ships, I believe, that's uh, yeah. off of Chatham. Right, yeah, yeah. There's some, so much uh, interesting, you know, there are many interesting stories associated with pirates. Another, could be another whole home book. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure. Uh, uh, and another uh, interesting story, too, is uh, Cape Cod Hospital. Uh, you mentioned in the information you sent uh, one incident, but I've heard over the years many, many uh, people who have had encounters for some reason at Cape Cod Hospital. I don't know if it's maybe the, the building itself or its location, but it just seems to have a lot of spiritual activity there. Wow, yeah, yeah. I mean, we had a story from the, the head nurse from the in the uh, OR unit at Cape Cod Hospital. It was actually in her home, you know, where she hears organ music in her home late at night. Uh, but, no, actually, the building itself, we actually haven't interviewed somebody yet that had um, a story. But that that's <laughs> be very interesting. It, it seems like any time I know somebody that stayed there, you know, they, they tend to have this story of, something walking down the hall or some noise they can't explain. I mean, there's a lot of activity in a hospital at night, and it is kind of unnerving to to have to sleep in one, but to have four or five different people tell me, oh, yeah, I think there's something in that building. That's interesting. I'd never actually heard that before with everything that we've heard from the cave. That's the first time I'd heard that mentioned. I'll but see if I can track down the people that, that mentioned it to me. Yeah, the original building of Cape Cod Hospital was actually a mansion before they leveled it and put the large building that they have now because they needed so much more room. So there is, you know, a history of a historic building on that site before the current building. And and the building was, uh, the original building was more uh, down Main Street? It was close, it was closer to um, to Lewis Bay Road. Okay. Well, the, that whole area down there, too, uh, in, in Hyannis, it's, I think that the 
culture that's popped up down there. I know a lot of it's tourist attraction, but there is, you know, a lot of Wiccan culture there. There is a lot of uh, psychics and spiritual people. And I understand that, you know, it is a tourist area, but there also seems to be drawn Native to that American area. American, too. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like that whole waterfront area down there has some sort of drawing power. And I think it's very sincere. The people that we met and talked to in the book were very, you know, very honest and open-minded about their beliefs. And it didn't seem like they were posing or, or you know, doing it because it was trendy or that it was fun. That they, It was really seemed that they had, you know, very strong spiritual beliefs. And you talked about, uh, when it comes to credibility, somebody like Bruce McKenzie, who now you can't question his credentials. You also had somebody else that you interviewed for the book, too, that uh, brings a pretty hefty resume to the table, uh, Charles Terrell. Right, yeah. He, he's the National Environment Coordinator um, during the, the Clinton administration. You know, I mean, somebody that, you know, he came with a, with a huge scientific background, you know, in uh, water chemistry and, you know, um, still had written several books about it. And, you know, it was very, you know, rational thinking, you know, scientific. Uh, I know his work. Oh, you do? Cool. Yeah. Oh, that's great, yeah. Matt Moniz is a scientist by day and a radio co-host by night. Uh, when when we started the show, it was it was a a great gift to be able to bring him on board and and bring in his scientific knowledge and you know exactly like you experienced with the book, it lends that credibility and people say now wait a minute, you know this is somebody who I'm going to listen to what he has to say. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean it certainly. I mean I came into the book. I mean in all honesty, I, I mean I'd never had experience growing up. You know, I and, and I grew up in Seekonk, uh, Mass, and of course, and, and um, I never. You know, and, and so I kind of came in with a little bit more of a skeptical viewpoint, and, and you know, but just uh, you know, sitting down with a lot of these, you know, a lot of people that you know, as Gary said, are very sincere, very, um, you know, you know, weren't, you know, had no reason to want to, um, you know, create a story, but just seemed, you know, to want to share their experience, and you know, people with very credible backgrounds often, and it, it kind of changed my latitude quite a bit. And uh, we, we invite you, if you'd like to call in and share some of your personal stories with, with Dan and Gary, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. I know that we have had people uh, over the course of the last couple of months as we've been doing the show get in touch with us and share some of their personal stories. We actually have one we're going to read uh, in a little bit. When we're going to take a quick break, and then on the other side, I'll read that story, and uh, we can talk about some of these other encounters that have happened on Cape Cod with, with uh, Gary and Dan. So. Hang on, and we'll be right back here on Spooky South Coast. What I don't know And never I live a life That's working the bumper work of the silent assassin, Matt Costa. Matt, say hello to the people tonight. Ahoy, hoy. And uh, why don't you tell them who that is? That is the cramps. The cramps, which I usually get after I swim after I've immediately eaten. But, uh, and I did mention before, uh, welcome back into Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg, Matt Costa, Matt Moniz along. We want to hear from you, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. Are on the message board at SpookySouthCoast.com. I had mentioned before the commercial break that uh, some one of our listeners had decided to share his personal experience with us, and we thank him for that. So I'd just like to read that real quick before we get back into the discussion about Cape Cod ghosts, because 
It's not quite a ghost story, but it certainly is creepy. Uh, this, this gentleman by the name of John said that when he was very young, he overheard his mother talking to his sister on the phone, and he heard the word witch and got very interested. He later asked what she was talking about. She wouldn't say. She brushed it off. Uh, after that time, he would hear little bits and pieces of a story, but never really knew what was being talked about. So when he, when he was older, he finally asked his mother what the story was about, and she finally did reveal it to him. Uh, when she was a little girl, sometime in the 30s, uh, th- this gentleman's grandmother uh, and, fa- and his grandfather and the mother and her sisters and brothers all lived in a tenement house on Cove Street in the south end of New Bedford. Every day when they would walk home from wherever they had been, they would walk by an old woman with a cane who was always dressed in black. She would always stare at the youngest of the sisters who, like her father, had blonde hair and blue eyes. Each time she would make some sort of gesture with her fingers and mumble something. One night, things started happening in the tenement where they lived. The entire family heard laughing and talking coming from the unrented tenement above them, similar almost to what Gary Joseph was talking about. When the grandfather and the sons took the hurricane lantern and went upstairs to see what was going on, uh, they found nothing but an empty tenement house. And then they all went back to bed. Things were quiet. All of a sudden, the youngest sister started screaming, saying the old lady was in the house with them. They thought she was just having a bad dream. But uh, once they were all sleeping again and she started screaming again, they all hugged her, trying to calm her down, you know, tried to console her. And she was suddenly being viciously attacked physically. She said that the old woman was hitting her. Uh, they could see the shadow on the wall of the old lady raising her cane and coming down with it. And they could actually hear it hitting her. Uh, but they could not see anybody there. So they all put their bodies over her as much as they could to protect her from the blows. Uh, by then, everyone in the room was screaming, not knowing what to do. The grandfather was trying to stop the old lady, but there was nothing to grab. So finally, it, it just stopped on its own. So in the morning, they, they could see the bruises all over her body. Uh, she was terrified, and so they didn't know what else to do. They brought her to the local church to have her blessed, and she passed out during the blessing and was crying when she came to. When they were ready to leave, the priest mentioned to them that there was an old custom that he knew of that they could try to ward off the evil witch, uh, by putting a pair of open, op- by an open pair of blessed scissors with mustard on it in front of their door. That's a little bit strange. I'd never heard that before. But uh, and so what they did is uh, they did that. They hung it on the door, and then they were awakened in the middle of the night by a horrible scream. And when the grandfather opened the door, the scissors were closed. So this gentleman says that he guessed that it worked because they weren't bothered again. Uh, they moved soon after that just to be safe. So, And he says that he did discuss that with all the other people in the family, uh, except for the aunt who was the one that was attacked. She refused to talk about it. So he had similar, you know, ex- they all had a similar story to share with him. And we thank him for uh, joining us uh, and giving us that little personal story. Maybe you know about the Witch of Cove Street. Uh, maybe it's something that you've heard before, 508-996-0500, 508 500 online at SpookySouthCoast.com. Now we're going to go back to the phones with our guests, Dan Gordon and Gary Joseph, talking about their book, Cape Encounters, Contemporary Cape Cod Ghost Stories. Guys, thanks for hanging on while we told that little story. Thank you. It's a very interesting story. Frightening. Uh, Witchcraft is something that uh, in the 30s and 40s and 50s, you know, we say that we were enlightened by the witch hunts around here, but... Let's face it, if you're you know, an old woman <laughs> with a cane, you're subject to that type of stereotype by young children. But this sounds like it was something that went a little bit beyond the usual, you know, we're scared of that old lady's house. Mm-hmm. 
So. Right, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and, and if anybody else has, has heard something similar, please call us and let us know. Now, uh, jumping back into the Cape Cod ghost stories, uh, when I first started discussing the show with some people that I know, uh, when we first started getting underway, I spoke to a woman who said to me, well, if you want to talk about ghost stories, local ghost stories, you need to go down to Sagamore. There's a cemetery there, and there's a gentleman by the name of Jerry Ellis that runs that cemetery, and he'll tell you some ghost stories. And uh, I guess you guys spoke with him for the book? Yeah, he's in our book, and uh, I think he's giving tours now of the cemetery. It's a historic cemetery and has a lot of very old gravestones, including several that were moved from the Cape Cod Canal area when the canal was dug. And he had experiences of smelling cigar smoke when he was out there alone at night working in the cemetery. He's kind of a caretaker of the cemetery now, and so, I guess it was pretty frightening for him at the time. So there was a cemetery in the stretch of land that was dug up for the canal? Yeah, there were two. There was, um, there was the Collins Farm Cemetery, and there was another cemetery that I guess certain amounts of money had to pass hands before the, the plots were actually moved because there was... Um, a family member that didn't want the plots touched, and he tried to hold off the diggers with a shotgun. Wow. But they eventually convinced him, and those, I guess, according to Mr. Ellis, are in the most haunted part of the cemetery. And he also mentioned uh, Jonathan Bourne, who was one of the town fathers of the town of Bourne, and supposedly he has kind of a restless grave. And he actually showed us, because uh, we had appeared on, on a television program, a chronicle, and he had showed us a photograph that someone had taken of an old gnarled tree in the cemetery, and it showed uh, like a kind of like a glowing white, almost like a ball, or like right around the tree, where apparently a psychic woman had told him that the spirit now lives in the tree. <laughs> wow. And that sounds, uh, it, it really sounds, I mean, just the fact that they disturbed graves. I mean, that alone just automatically opens the threshold for all kinds of paranormal activity. Now, have, have they ever had any formal investigations done by a group like uh, CAPERS, the Cape Islands Paranormal Research Group Society? If they've done that, I'm not aware of it. It's very possible. Because we could certainly set that up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Derek Bartlett and his crew would love to get out there. Yeah, it's just uh, an amazing cemetery, too. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, it's very uh, a beautiful setting and, you know, you know just the history in, in the cemetery. You know, some of those stones, as Gary said, you know, date back so far. And, and um, you do get that feeling, especially around uh, that tree that Gary described. I mean, it's a very, you know, a moment someone sets eyes on it. It just, you know, has kind of a, um, you know, a, a different look to it. You know. and, and where exactly is that cemetery? It's on Route 6A. Um, as you go around through Sandwich, mm -hmm. near where the uh, power plant is, as you pass under the Sagamore Bridge, it's on 6A, just as it turns from Sandwich into Bourne, and it's on the left-hand side of the road. Oh, we just passed there the other day, actually. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's funny because we were, we were discussing something about the, the graves, weren't we? Matt Costa and I? Uh, I don't remember. Yeah, he doesn't remember. <laughs> we'll go over there. But, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have to go and check it out because uh, there's a similar area. If you are heading in the other direction into Sandwich, uh, past the Shawnee Crawl State Forest, heading toward, like, the Heritage Plantation area, mm -hmm. there is a there's an inn there, a bed and breakfast, that is supposedly has a lot of activity. 
and that spirit, uh, from different reports that I've heard, has now gone beyond just that bed and breakfast and has now begun moving around to the different properties there. Is that the Dillingham House? I, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, we interviewed uh, a woman who was a police dispatcher, and she had actually had an experience at the Dillingham House at the time. It wasn't a B&B. It was closed for the winter, and she and another officer had gone in there responding to people calling in, saying they had seen lights coming out of upstairs windows. And they went in there, and she actually had, like, a really bizarre experience of the microwave oven turning on and the curtains billowing and rocking chairs rocking and, you know, really gotten so spooked that uh, they had to take off. And I had heard in my my, uh, daytime job, one of my daytime jobs, I come in contact with a lot of people, uh, and one of the stories that I heard is from somebody whose, I want to say aunt or cousin lives in one of those homes around there and said that some of the people that lived around that home had actually had a little informal get-together meeting to talk about things that had been going on because it had been leaving the, the Dillingham house and going into their own homes. So I don't know if it's maybe just the area and not tied into the particular home, or maybe it was that entire stretch of property was all one dwelling at one point. Mm-hmm. I've heard things before of, of different um, ghosts being seen in you know areas around, not just one particular house, but in other houses and in between those houses. And I there's um, a man who has a B and B on six A in Barnstable, and he actually claims that a girl in a white dress that's been seen at the Barnstable house and is a very famous you know figure and in kind of like a local legend that uh, she comes down as far as his inn. And uh, one of our frequent guests, Derek Bartlett, who I just mentioned, uh, his group Capers, they run a tour of Barnstable, and I believe that's on their tour of, of different haunted places. So if you want to find out more about that tour, go to www.capers.com, C-A-I-P-R-S.com, and you can take Derek's tour. Uh, one of the other uh, interesting things about just where the Dillingham House and that whole area in general if you're in that area, especially at night, you can feel a heaviness in, like, the downtown sandwich area around the Hoxie House and the old mill and uh, the Wing Elementary School and the library. I don't know if you spent a lot of time down in that area, but there seems to be some sort of something in the air down there. Well, Sandwich is the oldest town on the Cape, so I think it sort of goes hand-in-hand hand that it kind of has that, that feeling. And There's actually stories of... Um, you know, phantom parades and such of, uh, like, people from the Sandwich Glass Factory who would um, have, like, dances once a year, and there's stories of them kind of parading down the street in their, you know, their masquerade costumes. Yeah, I lived in East Sandwich, and, you know, I mean, even even down in that area, I mean, it's, um, I mean, adding to that, I mean, it's just so dark at night, and, you know, the... A lot of the trees are gnarled, and it kind of adds to the whole atmosphere. It is very quiet. Now, you said you yeah. lived in East Sandwich, uh, maybe around the Lawrence Pond area? Uh, no, I was on North Shore Boulevard. Okay. Um, I spent some time uh, living in the Lawrence Pond area, and okay. there was definitely a lot of activity in that area. Oh, wow. But I mean, I mean nothing, nothing uh, in terms of like a serious haunting, but you, know, you, would, uh, you would walk into the woods or... Or be walking down the street at night, and you always had a sense of something was watching you. But again, like you said, it's it's a quiet area. It's not like if you live here on the mainland, you don't quite understand what it can be like on Cape Cod, especially like in the winter time 
when there's not as much people, not as much uh, hustle and bustle. I mean, it really is a totally different feeling separated by, you know, a couple hundred feet of water. Exactly. Yeah, winter time is a time that people tend to really kind of gather and share their stories on the Cape. And it's a quiet time, and, you know, you're more introspective and have more time for yourself. And there might be some things in a house going on that, with the hustle and bustle of, of summer, you're not as likely to notice or pay attention to. But in, in the winter, those things, um, they tend to stand out more. Well, I was, I was going to ask you, uh, in the stories that you've gathered, uh, do you, did you gather a lot of stories from, like, summer residents that are only there for a few months out of the year, or is it a lot of year-round people that are there during the, you know, the dead of winter? I think most of these people were year-rounders. There were people who had historic homes, and they, in some cases they had had these homes for, you know, they were part of generations of owners, and they really t- kind of took pride in the knowledge of their, their historic home and, you know, the upkeep of it, and really um, they would usually give us a tour and show us the different rooms and such, and, you know, really had pride in, you know, showing off, especially if they restored it. There were, there were um, you know, a few few places that were um, just inhabited in the summertime, though, or, you know, on, like, uh, you know, actually the inn at Duck Creek is, uh, you know, um, just this summer establishment bought it up in the wintertime, and, you know, in, in Wellfleet, you know, you can ask anyone who, who lives there, and they'll, they'll have store director in their, you know, secondhand stories of, of their, of like, you know, music band, um, you know, uh, ghost, uh, ghost musicians and, you know, smelling turkey dinners when there's no turkey cooking in the restaurant and um, different things, people hanging from trees. So lots of very um, puzzling, you know, stories. Um, but we actually interviewed, you know, up, up in Wellfleet, there seems to be like a, a also just a concentration of ghost stories for some reason. and. Of, of reports of ghosts, and um, the, uh, one of the there's a valley. Uh, actually, that's up at, towards Truro, um, along the road, and um, where um, there's a kind of a you know a lot of people along that street report a wandering spirit. And um, we interviewed a woman, a Jean Sauer, who spent a lot of you know basically summered out there and, and had a number of experiences with with that spirit. As well. And one of the spirits that you cover uh, in the book as well is uh, a resident ghost of the Falmouth Theater Guild. Uh, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. That's that's uh, uh, um, interesting because so many people, you know, from that from the guild have stories. I mean, it really like you know, kind of adds to the whole uh, credibility of of these types of stories. Because I mean, we must have interviewed fifteen or twenty people that all say you know things go on there and they describe. Various things from you know uh, lights coming on and off during performances to you know noises to seeing you know seeing uh, it's a spirit of Faye that they believe is there. Um, Faye was a daughter of, of um, family uh, who I guess the family who owned Jordan Marsh I believe um, and you know started a company and, um, and they um, the daughter um, supposedly hung herself in, in that building where the performances occur and. Um, a lot of strange things go on. Um, people, a lot of the actors, you know, complain about like small stuff, like their makeup stuff being, you know, st- you know, disappearing and blaming, you know, Faye for like, you know, because she died as a teenager, is actually using the makeup. Um, you know, more bizarre stuff like people reporting, like, you know, seeing or feeling the presence of Faye as the driving off the property, like in- inside their car, you know, and several people have reported that. And, and the theater, 
uh, people being involved in the theater, they tend to be highly dramatic. That's so true. I would think any spirits that are going to hang out in the theater have to be dramatic as well. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it almost seems like from the stories that we hear that the Faye seems to really enjoy being there and you know, just likes to hustle and, and bustle and the energy and, you know, involved in the whole, you know, because, you know, not just the productions themselves, but, you know, all the preparation that goes into, um, you know, make, making a production. And, yeah, but it's just so many stories. It's in, and, and before uh, before we come on the news come up on the news break here, we welcome anybody out there that would like to share their Cape Cod ghost stories. 508-996-0500, Do you think now uh, you you mentioned the possibility of doing a second book? But do you think now with there's a bit of a more of an increased uh, attention being paid to the paranormal uh, with some of the just discoveries that have been made and you know shows like Ghost Hunters becoming popular? Uh, do you think that maybe you know, you're going to be able to go out there and get a whole fresh round of stories that you've never heard before? Um, we have a lot of material that we never used for the first book mm -hmm. and contacts and leads and things like that. So, yeah, I, they never seem to uh, run out. And usually when we meet someone that gives us a story, they invariably will lead us to, you know, to other people and you should talk to this person and this person. And that's the way the original book went and it just it snowballed because everyone seemed to know someone else and had a story. Is there a way people can get in touch with you if they want to share a story with you? Sure. Um, we have a website, and as you mentioned, uh, CapeCodGhosts.com, ghostsms.com, and um, we have e our email addresses on there, I and mean, you can interview it. I mean, Dan at CapeCodGhosts.com or Gary at CapeCodGhosts.com. Um, you can also call us. We have 617-899-6843. Uh, they're just, yeah, but through our website might be the most the easiest, that's the easiest way to get you. And also, they can order the book through your website as well, correct? Uh, that's right, yeah. It's in, in a lot of the ghost, uh, the bookstores, although we'll have to check into some stores that aren't able to keep it in supply. Yeah, well, I think if, eno if enough of us uh, call up and, and yeah. request it, they'll stock more because uh, we definitely want people to, to read this book. Where, and I, I can't wait to pick up a copy myself because all the stories I've heard over the years. Uh, Matt Moniz, our science advisor, did have one question for you before uh, we hit the news. Yeah, guys. Uh, do you have any stories about ghost ships being sighted in harbor, particular harbors in uh, the Cape? I've only heard of two myself, and they're not. Only one is contemporary. There was one. Um, there was someone who was in a small boat, and he happened to uh, have to make harbor in one of the Elizabeth Islands. I think it was Noshon. You know, the Elizabeth Islands are a chain that uh, stretch from Woods Hole you know, off past Martha's Vineyard, and, you know, several of the islands are privately owned by the Forbes family, and, you know, they're really rural, and they don't really get much activity at all, and he happened to kind of pull into a cove, and it was really, really foggy conditions, and he, he started to hear, like, real distinct conversations, you know, like seagoing, sea you know, seafaring people talking about in, you know, seafaring terminology, and he thought there was another boat out there, and he sent out all kinds of uh, signals and didn't get any response, and after the fog lifted and, you know, he left there, he checked with, you know, authorities to see what other, you know, boats or ships might have been around, and they couldn't find anything near him because he was hearing a conversation like it was, you know, 100 feet away, and they seemed to be talking in sort of like a, you know, more like archaic uh, 
way of speaking, like they, it may have been from like the 1700s or 1800s, and he could not, you know, find out where this other ship came from or who they were. And of course, being surrounded by water on all sides, you know, as we've discussed before, that just increases the level of uh, possibility for paranormal activity. And so, uh, you know, being out on the water even more so, at least, at least in what we've discovered and, and some of the information we found out. So uh, once again, if you would like to get your own copy of the book, Cape Encounters, you can go to their website, capecodghost.com. You can also email them through that website uh, if you have any stories you'd like to share. And, of course, you can always call us here at Spooky South Coast, or you can get uh, through to our website, spookysouthcoast.com, and anything that you would like us to pass along, we can do as well. Uh, guys, we thank you very much for joining us on such short notice. And, of course, Dan, we're going to keep you... We're going to get back in touch with you in the second hour so we can talk about some haunted baseball with your, with your co-author of that book, Mickey Bradley. And just, uh, just throwing it out there real quick, we're going to be talking to a Red Sox fan and a Yankee fan at the same time. <laughs> so that could, that could get a little ugly. Are you guys are good friends? Uh, we actually are, and it's kind of funny. We actually go to a Red Sox-Yankees game every year. and um, yeah, <laughs> it, it works out, I mean, because we're both fans of, base, of the game, and so somehow... You know, I mean, it can get it can get a little tense sometimes. We try to not, um, you know, we try to avoid certain, you know, subjects, especially if you know. One <laughs> no of Bucky Dent, no Aaron Boone, <laughs> no uh, exactly. no Mariano Rivera meltdown in '04. <laughs> exactly. I can just imagine. So we'll get into all that and more uh, when we talk about some of the spirits and specters that haunt the diamonds of America's pastimes. Uh, America's pastime. So 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. Keep those numbers in mind because we're coming right back after the news and we want to hear from you. We want to hear your ghost stories. We want to hear your alien sightings, your UFO encounters, anything you'd like to share with us here on Spooky South Coast because, as we say, we're ready to believe you. Coming up immediately after the news, we'll have The Week in Weird. We're going to tell you about the Intruders Foundation's latest seminar which is coming up on Saturday, June 3rd. We're going to let you know all about that. It's something that you don't want to miss. And then in the weekend, Weird, we will talk to you about some interesting discoveries in the scientific world this week that just may make time travel possible after all. So you're going to time travel right now through about six minutes of the news, and then we'll be back with more on Spooky South Coast. WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast, hour number two. Tim Weisberg here. The silent assassin, Matt Costa, behind the boards, and science advisor, Matt Moniz. I, I don't have anything as good as last time. That's right. Last time I put you in charge of the, the mayhem and the madness, so now you're just that guy sitting over there looking through the papers. Dr. Feelgood. He is Dr. Feelgood. He does make you feel all right. Now, we are going to tell you real quick before we jump into the week and weird 
about the latest seminar from the Intruders Foundation. That's a Bud Hopkins organization down in New York, which deals with people that have had UFO encounters and abduction uh, phenomena. So on Saturday, June 3rd, they're going to have Linda, is it Cortile? Cortile, yeah. Linda Cortile and the Brooklyn Bridge abduction case. The latest developments, newest disclosures, and an update to the book Witnessed, which is Bud's, Bud's book. The Intruders Foundation will offer a presentation by Bud Hopkins illustrating the development of the extraordinary Brooklyn Bridge abduction case as well as an extended dialogue with the central figure, Linda Cortile. Linda will be appearing to discuss her experiences, her subsequent intriguing contacts with the late Cardinal John O'Connor, and evidence that the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church has shown a surprising interest in the UFO phenomenon, uh, a, a subject that was not covered in Hopkins' book, Witnessed. The audience will hear the initial tape recording by a government agent whose all-important first-hand account of Linda's witness abduction triggered the case investigation. Hopkins will also present taped excerpts from one of Linda's hypnotic regressions in which she describes the abduction as it unfolded. There's probably never been an abduction case with so many witnesses to one or more aspects of the event, nor one that so clearly suggested an alien interest in earthly political matters. Several relatively unknown facets of the phenomenon, such as, quote, Mickey Baby Ann scenario, Matt, you can maybe fill people in on that. Mickey Baby Ann scenario. Uh, that is the part of the book that uh, I was actually involved with, with Bud. Uh, it involves where aliens take groups and pair them together, male and female, or sometimes male and male and uh, female and female, uh, and put them together as a unit. Sometimes these grow and develop into actual relationships where they get married and mm -hmm. things like that or they're best friends for life type of thing in most cases they are taken from totally separate areas and then meet later on in regular you know everyday you know, activity yeah and get together and it's like hey i know you i know you and uh it's a very very interesting facet of the phenomenon and I can discuss more of that with you off the air later. I can okay. share some really intriguing stories about well, it. It definitely sounds like something we can get into on Spooky South Coast at a later date as well. They'll go over the Mickey Baby Ann scenario and the power of alien co-option techniques, which were clearly displayed, as well as a range of physical evidence, including an X-ray of an implant in place of Cortiel's body. Linda continues to receive occasional phone calls from the agent named Richard, and Hopkins is privy to an ambiguous letter of denial from the third man, which in style and format is virtually identical to the confessional letters Hopkins had received from him during the investigation. In the final part of the evening, Linda will answer the audience's questions about the case. So if you are interested in these events on that fateful night, we, you know you have to get in touch with them soon because seating is limited. And now that will be Saturday, June 3rd. Doors open at 7 p.m. It is in New York. You can find out more information by going to the Intruders Foundation website, www.intrudersfoundation.org, and we'll put a link up to it tomorrow on SpookySouthCoast.com as well. And anybody that does go down there and take part in this, you know, we, we would really like for you to get in touch with us afterwards. Let us know about it, and, uh, and maybe we'll focus on it in a future date. So that is the latest series, latest in the series of their seminars. Now it's time for a little bit more information, or in some cases, disinformation, that we bring to you each week as part of something we like to call The Week in Weird.
And, of course, our first story comes from our friends across the pond. They seem to never have a shortage of paranormal stories to to supply us with. You know what it is, Matt Moniz, is I think because they have so much tabloid journalism over there that they aren't afraid to print it as much as uh, the American media might be. Agreed. This comes from the Sun Online, which is, of course, a bastion of integrity, hardly a tabloid. Uh, Matt Costa tonight just found out for the first time about the Page 3 girls. Uh, he had never known about that, so now he uh, is trying to put in his subscription to the Sun. Also, uh, News of the World, I think, does something similar, too. So, you know, if you want, want a little variety in your life. This story comes from John Troop of the Sun Online. Britain is set for a summer downpour of frogs and fish, scientists said recently. Recent changeable weather conditions such as storms, droughts, and sudden downpours have vastly increased the chance of objects falling down from the sky. Experts say the most likely spot for a BFO, or bizarre falling object, is the Norfolk Resort of Great Yarmouth. The phenomenon is highlighted in a British Weather Services report. Past recorded BFOs include jellyfish, frogs, crabs, fish, and coal. BWS senior meteorologist Jim Dale said the phenomenon can be caused by heat and air pressure coupled with atmospheric instability. He said, quote, converging cold air off the North Sea and warm air off the land make for the necessary conditions. Other BFO hotspots include East Manchester and Ipswich. So apparently these items are just sucked up into the atmosphere uh, and then rained down. Is that how it works out? Yeah, basically uh, it works like a small tornado. It's or water spouts sucking material up and then depositing it on land uh, further on. And it's called Fortian Phenomenon and named after Charles Fort, who was from England. And so basically it sucks up this material, but then how does it, you know, how does it rain frogs per se? I mean, wouldn't it rain whatever the contents were of where it sucked it up? Right. If it's going over a small freshwater pond that is just you know, had a batch of frogs hatch and whatever, it's going to rain the frogs or the fish after they've spawned or in one particular case it was coal and because it was a coal dump that was uh, used to fire up a power plant and some of the same coal was analyzed and determined that it came from this power plant stockpile a couple of miles away. Very interesting. Uh, Reminds me of that film Magnolia which uh, if you haven't seen it, um, well... It depends on how you feel about weird movies. If you like them, check it out. If not, okay, moving on. I don't want to say too much bad stuff about my wife's favorite movie, so uh, why don't we go to Matt Moniz, who's going to tell us uh, that he's pretty much found out about my family history. All right, this comes to us from uh, nature.com. The evolutionary split between humans and our nearest evolutionary cousins, chimpanzees, may have occurred more recently than we thought. According to a new comparison, the respective genetic sequences. Uh, what's more is it might have uh, been a messy divorce rather than a clean break. Sounds like all my divorces. Uh, you were married to monkeys? Uh, <laughs> close. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, leading to the controversial theory that our two sets of ancestors may have interbred many thousands of years after first parting company. Don't you just love it when love <laughs> brings two people back together? Or in this case, a person and a monkey together? <laughs> I heard a monkey love, but uh, yeah. If such a hybrid population really did exist, the question remains 
as to whether it died out or whether modern humans or chimpanzees or both are its descendants. For some reason, human-like fossils far outnumber chimpanzee-like ones in the fossil record, making it difficult to see exactly who was sleeping with whom at what time. And now this might be... Uh, I actually feel bad about having to throw it to you now, Matt, after this, since they're talking about, you know, the ancestors of monkeys and humans mixing together. All the jokes we've made uh, over the past couple of weeks about you being a Sasquatch, a Bigfoot, a some sort of cryptid hominid creature, I feel bad throwing it to you after all that, because it's going to seem like I'm calling you Monkey Man yet again. But it's time for Matt Costa to share with us a story. I think I'm more of a Wookiee than a monkey. And what a Wookiee you are. What was that? <laughs> Alright, what do you got for All us? Alright, this comes from Steve Kingstone from BBC News. Brazilian archaeologists have found an ancient stone structure in a remote corner of the Amazon that may cast new light on the region's past. The site thought to be an observa- observ- observatory or a place of worship predates Euro- European colonization and is said to suggest a sophisticated knowledge of astronomy. The discovery was made by archaeologists in the state of Amapa, in the far north of Brazil, where a total of 127 large blocks of stone were found driven into the ground on top of a hill. Well preserved and each weighing several tons, the stones were arranged upright and evenly spaced. It is not yet known when the structure was built, but fragments of indigenous pottery found at the site are thought to be 2,000 years old. The stones appear to have been laid out to help pinpoint the winter solstice when the sun is at the lowest point in the sky. It is thought the ancient people of the Amazon use the stars and phases of the moon to determine crop cycles. The discovery at Amapa is being compared to the English site of Stonehenge, although the English site, English site is considerably older. Hmm. Very interesting. I wish I could get down and check out some of these places. Not being the world traveler that I am not. Now, uh, we're going to mention not so much a story, but I thought this might kick off just a few minutes of discussion here. Uh, This comes from Physorg.com, a redistribution of a story that was published in Science Magazine. In the past few years, scientists have found ways to make light go both faster and slower than its usual speed limit, but now researchers at the University of Rochester have published on how they've gone one step further, pushing light into reverse. As if to defy common sense, the backward-moving pulse of light travels faster than light. Confused? Well, you're not alone. I'm, I'm pretty confused. Uh, Robert Boyd of the M. Parker Gibbons Professor of Optics at the University of Rochester said that he'd had some of the world's experts scratching their heads over this one. Uh, the theory predicted that they could send light backwards, but nobody knew if the theory would hold up or even if it could be observed in laboratory conditions. Boyd recently showed how he can slow down a pulse of light to slower than an airplane, or speed it up faster than its breakneck pace using exotic techniques and materials. But he's now taken what was once just a mathematical oddity, negative speed, and shown it working in the real world. It's weird stuff, said Boyd. We sent a pulse through an optical fiber, and before its peak even entered the fiber, it was exiting the other end. Through experiments, we were able to see that the pulse inside the fiber was actually moving backwards, linking the input and output pulses. Now that is, for the common person, a lot of scientific mumbo-jumbo, but Matt Moniz, you have a, a better understanding of, of what that is. My basic assumption is 
people have said for years now that if time travel was going to be possible, reversing light would be the first step because light is pretty much the fastest thing that we can that we can comprehend. Well, mathematically or, or in terms of physics, according to Einstein, uh, the faster you travel towards the speed of light, the slower things happen for you. Uh, uh, that's why he said nobody can ever really travel faster than the speed of light because light and distance and mass are all equal. The faster you go, the heavier you are, the more dense you become and the slower you, you, go, you go through time. So to speak. But I mean, so you'd naturally be slowing through time, but to be able to move backward is it, it, this is definitely an interesting theory. Now, Einstein also said time travel is possible, and uh, it, because of the way physics is, because the mass at such a speed is acting upon gravity itself, and also will allow you to warp through time. You know, just like what you saw in Star Trek mm -hmm. when they walked around the sun to go through time. Yeah, because a heavy, dense body will bend time and space. And so do you think if they can make light travel backward like that, they can make... I mean, it's hard to say because is it traveling physically backwards or, or metaphysically backwards? But, I mean, I, I just think... If they've always said, you know, we have to be able to control light. If we can make light go backwards, we can make time travel possible. Well, they have it now. Well, light is both a particle and a wave. Mm -hmm. So what's what part's going forward? What part is the physical part? And what part is the energy state? Is it the, is it the photon that we're seeing going backwards? Or is it the energy wave that we see going backwards? Okay, we're really starting to get over my head here. So we're going to take a quick break. On the other side, we're going to bring back in... Uh, our guest from the first hour, Dan Gordon, and he's going to be joined by his other co-author and Yankee fan, Mickey Bradley. They're going to talk to us about Haunted Baseball, a new project they have slated to come out next spring. Check them out, hauntedbaseball.com. Of course, we want to hear from you, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. We want to hear about your ghostly baseball stories. We know you've heard them. The Red Sox have been involved in a few themselves. So uh, stay tuned. We'll talk about that in just a few here on Spooky South Coast. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Godzilla is attacking us here at the studios of WBSM. Oh, no. Oh, wait. Oh, oh he just wanted to show off his new Spooky South Coast t-shirt. Okay. Thanks for that, Godzilla. I don't know why they call you such a terrible lizard. Joining us on the phone again from the first hour is Dan Gordon, now with his other co-author, Mickey Bradley. They are working on a book called Haunted Baseball. You can check out some of the preliminary stuff, hauntedbaseball.com. The book actually comes out next spring, and, of course, we're going to have them on again 
when the book uh, is actually released because then they can talk about a little bit more of this stuff. But for now, we're going to talk a, in a little bit of generality. So, guys, good evening. Well, Dan, welcome back, Dan. Hi, good to be good to be here again. And uh, and how you doing, Mickey? Hello. You can hear us, okay? Hello, Mickey. I can hear you fine. Can oh. you hear me? I can hear you. Although I'm not sure I want to because Mickey is a Yankee fan. A, life, a lifelong Yankee fan named after the team's legendary center fielder. Right. When you're born into it, you really have no choice. That's true. Well, you can always choose to go back into the right side of the world. But, hey, we'll, we'll cut you some slack. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're just having some fun here. So yeah. We are a Red Sox. Yeah, we're, we're a Red Sox affiliate here, so we, we, have to, we have to tow the company line. Right. Well, Dan is a lifelong Red Sox fan, so I always say that we're trying to model inclusive behaviors by, by partnering on the book. <laughs> <laughs> now, so you guys have spent, I, I, and I know, as I said before, there's, there's some stuff that you can't talk about until the book comes out. We understand that, but you've each spent uh, significant time in, in your team's respective ballparks, two of the most legendary in baseball. Have you ever had any kind of strange experiences at Yankee Stadium, personally? Uh, I haven't personally, but, you know, one of the things we find with a lot of the older ballparks, and, and Fenway and, and Yankee Stadium are two of the ones that we hear the most stories about, um, is that people's experiences range from outright ghost stories, where they claim to have had encounters with ghosts, to people who say, you know, I don't know if I believe in that, but when I'm in an old stadium like that, we've had players say this in fans, I really feel the, the history and the presence of all the great people that have been there before me, all the great uh, moments that have happened there, the history, the legacy, and that has its own kind of energy that people respond to. One thing that I, I think about baseball ghosts, and, and I certainly think that there is a, a myriad of them, one of the things that I think is it's twofold. Uh, in some respects, you have these players who that might have been the greatest time of their life, the, you know, the best thing they ever did with their life, and they don't want to let the game go, so they'll gravitate back to the fields. And then on the other hand, think of all the miserable guys that never won a World Series. You know, you want to talk about unfinished business? <laughs> yeah, well, you probably have to talk more to Dan about that one than me, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, one of the interesting things about the... Subtle little Yankee digs here. Little big. <laughs> We finished business in 2004. But <laughs> no, I, I don't want to. We, we, we getting. We don't want to. Uh, <laughs> oh, sure we do. Ruin us. We can oh, gloat. 2000. Right. That's all we got to say. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, we're having fun. Probably uh, one of the most fun fun uh, things in baseball, and it's it's great. But uh, as far as um, you know the um, you know the idea of hanging out at ballparks. I mean, one of the fascinating things about the game is just how many people you know sprinkle their the ashes of loved ones at the stadium. I mean, stadium workers um, see that all the time. You know, they say that, you know, some ball players might be buried under certain home plates or certain people are buried under home plate. I, I it, heard, it, isn't Jimmy Hoffa buried under home plate at Chase Stadium? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Uh, we'll never know. <laughs> now, uh, w one thing uh, that I remember from a few years ago, maybe I'm thinking 10 or 15 years back, uh, Father Guido Sarducci, not a member of the Catholic Church, despite what he tells you, uh, to the comedian Don Novello, actually had an exorcism at Fenway Park to try to get rid of some of these ghosts, and especially, of course, the, the curse of the Bambino. Uh, in your research for the book, how much has that phrase come up? 
Well, you hear about you hear about a lot of curses, but certainly the curse of the Bambino is, is one of the best known ones. You know, and since the Red Sox um, put that one to bed in 2004, it's been interesting because prior to that, many there were many attempts to get rid of the curse. Some of them very famous, and some of them personal fan attempts to get rid of the curse. But now that the curse is gone, a lot of people can lay claim to having having done that. So, <laughs> well, been successful. One one that can't is they never did find Babe Ruth's piano out in that lake, did they? No, but I'll tell you one of my favorite ones. I, I spoke last year to a group of women. There, it was about six or seven school teachers who um, every year they're, they're giant Red Sox fans, and every year they go to a different city to watch the Red Sox play. They were in Chicago watching them play the White Sox, and. They were telling me that they considered themselves responsible for reversing the curse. The previous year, they had gone to Baltimore to watch the Red Sox play, and they, they made a ritual out of going to Babe Ruth's childhood home, which you can visit now. It's some kind of museum um, not far from Camden Yards. They went to his, if I'm remembering correctly, they went to his um, room, uh, walked backwards in a circle three times, went to Camden Yards, had their picture taken with the statue of Ruth that's out in front, and had the picture taken by a Yankee fan. They told me it had to be a Yankee fan. And that was going to reverse the curse. And it's hard to argue with the results. It's true. That's true. Uh, Matt Moniz, our science advisor, he thinks he knows who broke the curse. Oh? Yeah. Uh, in 2004, Babe Ruth's last remaining daughter was brought to Yankee Stadium to receive an award. Now, what was interesting is Steinbrenner, as well as the whole Yankees uh, cohorts there, charged her to admission to be to come into the stadium to receive her own award. Now, how much of a slap in the face to Babe Ruth is that charging his own daughter to come into the stadium that he built? Hmm. Well, I mean, George doesn't really like to give a whole lot away for free. <laughs> we we can't get Mickey to cross the boss here, I don't think. No, but well, is that something that you guys had heard, or I'd uh, heard I'd heard that story. Uh, I, I'd actually, you know, heard of also. It's not about, a story; it's a documented fact. She was charged to come into the stadium. Yeah, yeah. I, it's, it's, and of course, you know, she lives in New Hampshire uh, during the baseball season. Right. So, anytime she wants to come to Fenway, red carpet treatment, they don't charge her a thing. They probably stick her out in the bleachers. But they don't charge her a thing. <laughs> well, you know, what, what, what's impressed me is how many different versions there are of, again, for, for a variety of curses. And some teams that uh, I was not familiar with having curse stories before. Everyone knows about the Cubs and everyone knows about the Red Sox. Mm -hmm. We found other, other teams that have curse stories, too. And uh, wherever there's a curse story, there's also somebody trying to get rid of it. Uh, any that you can mention? Well, um... Some of them, I, I think, are, we're still uncovering, really. Um, sometimes, it's, sometimes it's for for uh, minor league teams as well as major league teams. Oh, I know the minor leagues are are, are very rich in, in history of this type of stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting sometimes to see where there aren't uh, curse stories. The, the White Sox won last year, and that's a team that hadn't won in a very long time either. And we've, we've heard some bits and pieces of things here and there, but you don't hear nearly as many curse stories for them as you do for the, the Cubs, who um, obviously hadn't won in, in a, a little bit longer, but I mean, they seem to avail themselves of the same kind of stories. And it, it's in that city, it's kind of a case, too, of, of one of them's clinging to a curse, 
almost for an identity. Right. Well, in that city, too, one team likes to be whatever the other team is not. So yeah, one team has a lot mean. of curse stories. The other's going to go in a different direction, probably. And uh, one of the questions that we have on our message board, uh, uh, somebody posted up earlier, our, our friend Carl, who recently discovered the show, uh, he's all the way out in California, and he wants to know uh, if you'd ever heard of any uh, ghost stories coming from uh, Oakland, out in Oakland way, because, he's, as he said, uh, many people were killed there. I think that might be an inside joke there about the the A's fortunes over the years. Hmm. I mean, I know there was the earthquake, but I don't think that they were in can. Uh, I know Candlestick was affected, but I, I don't remember the Coliseum being affected. No, we haven't actually heard a story yet from the, the stadium. I mean, we got was getting a surprising amount of stadiums though, and, and you know, um, and you know, probably about a dozen stadiums um, altogether, and and yeah. It's open, not yet, but you know we're hoping. But we're still, we're still in the midst of our research, so you know we'll dig <laughs> a little deeper. I'm sure, uh, especially. I mean, Oakland's a, a long, long-established team. Uh, they moved originally from, weren't they, on the East Coast originally? Kansas City Athletics. Yeah, Kansas. That's right, the Athletic Club there. Mm-hmm. And, and and so, you know, these are teams that have been around baseball, you know, over a hundred years old. So there's going to be stories in in every corner of, of every stadium of every park. Right. Yeah. I mean, a lot. Of, there are a lot of newer ballparks now too, which kind of, you know, of course, doesn't have the same history to it. Some of some of the uh, parks, though, like a belt. It's you know, people claim it's the land that that they're built on, and you know, the stories associated with that. Yeah. I mean, the, as, for each new park that opens, especially when they tear down and rebuild on the same site, which I believe that's what they did in Philadelphia, right? They built the new uh, field over the old veterans. Uh, yeah, a lot of times it's like either right on or right adjacent, uh, you know, to the site. You know, it's kind of interesting. One of the thing, you know, you know, side hobbies that I, I've, you know, it's really interested me is just how many like remnants of ballparks there are in different places. Like, like in Brooklyn, there's a Washington Park, you know, which is the turn of the century, the the Brooklyn Grays, and um, which is uh, you know the predecessors to the uh, Dodgers and. Um, you know, they're just that there, there are walls left intact, or you know, clubhouses and different things. That, you know, markers sometimes like a, a home plate somewhere, like the old polo grounds. There's a home plate of polo grounds right in the midst of the, the polo, polo grounds projects, and you know, it's really interesting to see those as well. And of course, we're you know looking into those types of story, you know, places as well. And you know, um, and you're going to get a lot of stories, I'm sure, about. Individual players, uh, individual fans, um, you know, managers, owners, groundskeepers, but uh, one one branch of the whole presentation that is often, you know, the most tied into a particular team is the announcers, uh, because you know they're there year after year after year through all the good and bad. I mean, some of these greats that have been around for a long time, like you know Harry Carey and and uh, just these guys that have stuck with the team for a long time. It, it, it tends, I myself personally, I, I don't cover a lot of baseball as a sports writer. I cover a lot of basketball and football. And they built the TD Bank North Garden, as you know, right next to the old Boston Garden. Right, yeah. And so I have a habit of when I'm leaving, I go down this dark hallway staircase. Uh, and, and as I'm leaving, I always say goodnight to Johnny Most. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and you're going to, I'm sure, hear some of these stories, too, of people who you know, or might be sitting there at a, at a game and hearing like Harry Carey's voice, or or some of these other uh, announcers. I mean, is that anything even countered so far? Or? 
Yeah, actually, yeah, we've had, you know, people, you know, especially some, you know, the older PA announcers. Uh, and, um, yeah, there's certainly, you know, one of the interesting things about, you know, one of the things that's really, um, I mean, it's, it's kind of common sense, but it's kind of taken me by surprise just to, the level at which, like, players consider themselves a fraternity. I mean, consider the whole organization part of a family or a fraternity. Even if they change teams every so often, they're still kind of, you know, players, uh, you know, often treat, you know, clubbies like part of the, you know, people who work in the clubhouse and people, you know, as part of the team. And, you know, the, and um, so we get a lot of stories, you know, a lot of mixture um, well, we've, yeah. we've heard about some of the gifts they give these clubhouse guys, so. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because when I think when we started, we were figuring that if you wanted to get some of these stories, you really have to go inside and talk to the players. And we have talked to hundreds of players. Um, we've been very fortunate in getting a lot of access that way. But when you get to anyone who's sort of behind the scenes, like you're talking about, uh, Tim, and when Dan was just mentioning the clubhouse folks, the announcers, the groundskeepers, of course, uh, security People who, people who are there, you know, when, when no one else is there sometimes and when the lights are out, and that's sometimes when some of the spookier things start to happen. Or even in the winter when the season right, is going the on. Season, exactly. So it's great to be able to, um, to try to hit on some of those lesser-known people but who really have that inside track, and they've often got great stories to tell. And about the, the Red Sox in general, we've heard some stories in the, uh, in the media the last few years about a, a hotel in Tampa that they've stayed in. And I know that this has been touched upon on your website, so maybe we can talk about it a little bit. Um, I'm, I forget the name of the actual hotel, but there have been players uh, in newspapers, which you would think, you know, these guys are so weary of the of the print media that follow around teams. They know that, you know, the least little slip will end up in, especially in Boston, you know, in all the newspapers and on uh, the sports talk signals. So for them to come out and say that there's something going on there, it must be something that all of baseball is familiar with. Yeah, we've heard a couple of stories like that, I guess. Um, a ton of them, obviously. And there's, there, there are certain hotels that you hear about over and over. There's a couple in the major leagues, a couple in the minor leagues that we hear about continually. The one you're talking about is the Vinoy, which is uh, actually in St. Petersburg. And teams that are in town to play the Devil Rays stay at that hotel. Um, Dan, do you want to take a guess at how many players we've heard give stories from that place? Uh, at least three dozen, if, if not more. And, and, you know, they're scattered throughout baseball. You know, I mean, obviously uh, Scott Williamson, uh, uh, you know, was with the Red Sox. He had his, um, actually his experience occurred when he was with uh, the Reds right before he was traded to the Sox. But, um, you know, the story really broke. You know, it broke actually at the time, you know, with the Reds, but then kind of, again, kind of had to kind of a second life um, um, when he was with the Sox. And, you know, it kind of created a little bit of, uh, um, you know, excitement in, in the Red Sox clubhouse, you know. And in general, I mean, players sleep with their lights on in the hotel. You know, they, some players refuse to stay in the hotel. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's a fair, you know, there's a lot of, you know, these players who aren't afraid of a, a ball coming 100 miles per hour, 95, 98 miles per hour at them, but, you know, <laughs> But have to sleep with their lights on. It's really well. I mean, that's because baseball players are a superstitious lot in general. Oh, absolutely, I would think. yeah, yeah. Very superstitious. And I, I, I would mention, as, as you kind of indicated, Tim, um, at our website, which is hunterbaseball.com, there is a sample chapter from the book up there that has to do with the Vinoy. So the, the Scott Williamson story that uh, Dan was just mentioning 
is there in more detail, as are many other stories from that place. And, and a lot of the times, these superstitions that these players have do tie into the some of the spiritual activity. Like, for example, when Roger Clemens was with the Yankees, hopefully the only time he was with the Yankees, if you're listening, Roger, uh, uh, he used to come out before every start, and he would go to Monument Park, and you know he would kind of do the old kiss to to the uh, to the monuments out there. Right, the Babe Ruth monument in particular. Uh, you know, I think one of the reasons that the topic um, has interested a lot of people. I mean, you could, I suppose you can do haunted football and haunted hockey and a lot of other things, and that would be very interesting topics too. But I I believe that baseball, more than any other sport, keeps that connection to its past alive. Absolutely. And that was great figures from the past. I mean, we're, we're talking on a day when Babe Ruth has been in the news again because Barry Bonds just tied his record. I mean, those, those great figures are kept alive figuratively in the game, in baseball more than I think in other sports. And these, these are ways in which those uh, names are kept alive literally almost as well. And those, those great players from the past that we hear about a lot, like Ted Williams and Ruth and uh, Gehrig, um, are still very much an active force in the game for fans today. And, of course, uh, we're going to take a quick break here. But uh, while we are in commercial, if Babe Ruth would like to get in touch with us and share with us his thoughts and feelings on Barry Bonds tying him for second on the all-time home runs list, you know, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500, online at SpookySouthCoast.com, or even, you know, just a general, you know, talking out loud or talking through Matt Moniz, whatever you want to do. We'd like to hear from the babe and you. Uh, we'll be right back after a few moments here on Spooky South Coast. Beaming from the studios of AM 1420 WBSM into the night and beyond. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. All right, Spooky South Coast here on a Saturday night. We have a little bit of time left, so if you'd like to join us, 508 996 0500. 508-291-0500. Perhaps you've heard a ghost story surrounding baseball that you would like to share with our guests, Dan Gordon and Mickey Bradley, authors of the forthcoming book, Haunted Baseball, especially here in the New Bedford, the South Coast region, where we have the Cape Cod League, one of the league, uh, elite leagues, uh, uh, amateur leagues around, and they've been around a long time. There's probably some ghost stories tied into that. So if you have some that you'd like to call in and share, 508-996-0500. 508-291-0500. And, and guys, I know you said that you collected some stories from the from the minor leagues. Uh, have you collected anything from the Cape Cod League? I've sent out uh, some inquiries and uh, you know talked to some coaches and uh, people, long long time personnel. And so far, nothing's come up. But you know, of course, you know, having written a book about Cape Cod ghost stories, I'm, I'm not satisfied with the results. And I'll keep digging because you know, I mean. It's such, you know, it is such an historical league. So many great players have passed through there. You know, I mean, it's kind of an intimate league. You know, and um, it would just be wonderful, you know, to to learn about a story, you know, connected with the league. I have actually gotten stories from like the New England Collegiate League and from 
the Sunset League and, um, you know, of course, throughout the minors, you know, and, and about. But, you know, definitely for some reason the Cape Cod League has stumped, stumped us so far, but we're going to keep keep at it. I mean, I know there's a lot of player movement involved in that league and, uh, I mean, so the players might not stick around long enough to have a, a, a real connection with the league, but so many people dedicate time and, you know, for no money. I mean, there's no profit to be made there. Right. If yeah. you're one of these people that either run a team or help run the league or who house some of these players. Right. So there's yeah. such a love for that league that I can imagine there must be some people that cross over the other side or, or, or fail to cross over and they decide to focus on the different parks of, of that league. So who I wouldn't knows? be surprised. Yeah, maybe, that... maybe somebody's listening now and they can call in and share it with us. And now, as you said, the minor leagues uh, have a lot of these stories, and, and you said that you've touched upon some collegiate ones as well? Right. Um, the New England Collegiate League and um, teams out in Western Massachusetts, out in Pittsfield and North Adams up that way. Um, um, you know, we get stories. Um, you know, Sunset League, I've just recently got a story from, um, you know, of uh, a curse a curse story from uh, the team from uh, one of the teams that plays at you know, the new part is the, the ballpark there. I, I forget how old it is, but it's one of the older parks, uh, you know, in existence. And it's a wonderful ballpark to go to, actually. Um, you know, right in, right in the heart of downtown, too. Um, Br- Bridgewater State College is, is one uh, facility that has a lot of ghost stories surrounding it. And I'd, I'd be interested in finding out if there's any tied into the athletics, because I've heard a lot of stories tied into individual buildings. So who knows? Maybe the fields and the diamonds are haunted there as well. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, uh, you know, the, the more we look, the more we find. So, you know, I mean, of course, you know, like, you know, we're, you know, it's a national book, so we have to cover, yeah, oh, you know, absolutely. a lot of territory. Yeah. You know, I was actually just in Japan. Uh, we're doing a, a global chapter, and I, I got a lot of great stuff from there. And um, yeah, it's a very um, in Japan. Um, there's a lot of superstition as well. You know, and the superstition is, is very different than the superstition here in the states you know all players have it, it is a little bit more accepted over there to discuss the paranormal it is in the spiritual for um you know in japan you know with uh, buddhist beliefs and and in shinto you know they uh, a belief you know a lot of houses have sh- you know little shrines in their house to their ancestors and you know there is a whole season called the obon season where they talk about their ancestors coming back and you know the a family pays tribute to them and, you know, leaves a, a seat open and, and whatnot. And, um, you know, some of that, you know, spirituality definitely seems to weave into baseball and, you know. Well, I hope they don't leave, like, a, a spot in the lineup open. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe the eight or nine hitter, but definitely not the heart of the order. Sure, yeah. I, uh... <laughs> now, and you guys are targeting a spring release for the book, uh, spring of 07? Right, yeah. Lions Press is coming out with the book, and yeah, it's uh, it we're, it sh- it should come out in the spring. But you know, I mean, sometimes you know they probably should. You know, sometimes it could be delayed into the fall. We don't, we're not sure. But yeah, pub- publishers def- look at, at at a book and they're like, oh, baseball. We have to make sure we have it out during spring training. Yeah, well, there's a fall season too, and 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 you know, I mean, it, it will all depend on what the you know after the we submit the manuscript, there'll be finished in September, you know, it's all up to the sales department and, you know. So you're looking to, to utilize one more baseball season at all levels to try to gather some more information? Yeah, right. you know, we, we've, um, it's funny because Dan and I were just talking today about how we could keep researching this for forever, it seems. 
you, the more stones you turn over, the more stories you find, and um, it's tempting just to keep doing it because we're, we're getting a lot of really good stuff. But we started about uh, a little over a year ago. I, I would say, well, I guess we started a year and a half ago talking about it and making our first steps. Our, our first big push was spring training of 05, which was a great time to talk to a lot of uh, players and, and really get into a lot of clubhouses. And we continued throughout last season, and this season we were both at, at uh, spring training. In fact, we were each both in Florida and in Phoenix at different times. And, um, and yes, we're, we're supposed to get the manuscript to the publisher in September. So we're taking as much advantage of this season as we can. All right, and hopefully, uh, hopefully, the, maybe the Cubs can break a curse too, and that'll that'll help play into things. Well, I of guess course. So, although I feel like we're losing our good stories when uh, <laughs> we're losing. You know, we lost a great, the, the best known curse story. I realize people are very happy about that in your uh, in your listenership, and I'm happy for the Red Sox too. But um, you know, I tend to see everything now in terms of. Uh, the book. <laughs> is it good for us or bad for us when it occurs? <laughs> exactly. Well, hey, rivalries are only a rivalry if it goes back and forth. Right. It's not a rivalry if it's one-sided. And, and you know, who knows? That that could be a rivalry that's being played out in the spirit world as well. My question is, you know, does Babe Ruth play one day for the Sox and one day for the Yankees? Who knows? Uh, well, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll put that question to him. All right. <laughs> and, and, of course, he can join us here anytime. And, and, of course, we want you guys to come back with us when the book does come out so we can get a little bit more in-depth with some of this stuff and, and we can touch upon all this. We'll try to see if we can, through you know our various connections, uh, see if we can get some players to join us as well. Uh, Certainly. We'll, we'll yeah, put, that would be great. Yeah. So just uh, keep us abreast as to when the book is coming out and, and you know check in here with us anytime if you, if you get something that you want to share. So for those who want to check out the website now in advance of the book, it's hauntedbaseball.com, the book coming out by Dan Gordon and Mickey Bradley. So check that out. You know, Send them an email if you've heard some stories you'd like them to, to follow up on. Also, uh, Dan Gordon and Gary Joseph have authored the book Cape Encounters, Contemporary Cape Cod Ghost Stories. That's available at capecodghost.com and I'm sure through Amazon.com and, and uh, various local bookstores once they get it back on the shelves. You know, and... and Maybe, you know, who knows, maybe people heard that you guys were coming on and, and they ran out and that's why there was a big rush. So maybe <laughs> next week there'll, uh, there'll be more out there. I, I do know one bookstore uh, locally that I, I can't mention, but they did say that they were going to order a couple copies and put them on the shelf because they knew that you guys were coming on. So that's great. Yeah. We, we thank you once again for, for coming to our rescue and, and joining us. Uh, and Lauren Coleman, we will have him on sometime in the future. And uh, as soon as we can get his family situation under control, you know, we we want him to handle that stuff first. Lauren's a big baseball fan too, and actually has written on on baseball suicides. And actually, he helped us out a lot initially with our some of our research. Well, when we but do on. when we do get him, we'll have to put him on the spot about some baseball stuff too. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, well, thank you guys once again. Thank you, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate it. And then we want to let everybody know next week. We are going to have on Linda Thornton and Rick White uh, of Willing Hearts Productions. They put together the film uh, The Bell Witch Haunting, which is actually the original film that came out about the Bell Witch case, which is now the subject of the new film An American Haunting. So they put out the first movie based on a stage play that they did based directly on the legend as they had researched it, and they worked with a gentleman by the name of Pat Fitzhugh, who is one of the world's foremost authorities on the Bell Witch Haunting. Now, for those who don't know, this is the only recognized case in United States history where a spirit has been blamed for the death of a human being. 
So we're going to talk about that with Linda and Rick, and we will talk to them about the discrepancies between the actual story and the uh, new film, An American Haunting. Also next week, our science advisor, Matt Moniz, is going on a little bit of a field trip. He's heading out to Waverly Hills, which is the uh, sani- I want to say it right, sanitarium yes. that was investigated by TAPS on the season premiere of Ghost Hunters, you know, the back nine of season two. So he's going to be down there doing some investigating. He'll check in with us. Hopefully, if everything works out cell phone-wise and investigation-wise, he can stay with us for the whole show. And uh, who knows, maybe some stuff will happen while he's down there. So, remember, you can get a hold of us all week long. Matt at SpookySouthCoast.com, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com, and for Matt Money's Science Advisor at SpookySouthCoast.com, and uh, on our website. And be sure to get in touch with us with any questions you might have for Linda and Rick in advance of next week's show. So, for Matt Costa, for Matt Moniz, I'm Tim Weisberg. We invite you to stay spectacular, everybody. See you next week. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. Look, I know the supernatural is something that is...